This morning, we'll be in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is in the New Testament. It's one of the letters of Paul. He's writing to the church of Ephesus. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be kind of just highlighting a few verses in, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, 21 through 22, and then 25. And kids, I want you to think this morning about, and I know this might be gross and yucky, but what does, what do you think about your future husband or wife if God would call you to be married? What does marriage mean to you? What do you think of when you think of the word marriage? Marriage is what we call what our mommies and daddies are together in marriage. That's the relationship that they have together. What does it mean for them to live in this marriage? And what is marriage supposed to look like? What is it supposed to be? And this morning, we are going to talk a little bit about that, about what marriage looks like and marriage, what marriage is supposed to be. And for us as kids, as we're growing up, a lot of what we think of and understand marriage to be is what we see from our moms and dads or our grandma and grandpas, maybe fr- marriages of friends of ours. And so marriage can, we can have good images of what marriage is, and sometimes we can have images or understanding of marriage that's not really what it's supposed to be. And even when we have good understanding of marriage from what we see from our moms and dads, or our grandma and grandpas, or friends, parents. Even those, mar- even those relationships aren't the way they're supposed to be. And so as we talk this morning, I want to think about what does it mean for us to be married? What is marriage supposed to be? Now, adults and kids as well, we often seem to want to idealize or romanticize marriage. And the reality is that while marriage is good, just like every other aspect of life, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Even in the best marriages, spouses will experience hurt feelings, heartache, frustration. Since Adam and Eve sinned against God and each other, marriage is in need of shalom. Even going back to biblical times, we see marriage is not the way it's supposed to be. The Bible shows us over and over again how shalom is broken in marriages of the great, quote, heroes of the faith. You think about the heroes that we think of sometimes in Sunday school. We think about maybe Abraham. We think about Moses. We think about David. We think about all these people in the Bible And the Bible shows us how their marriages at times and sometimes for long periods of life are not the way that they are supposed to be. But it wasn't just biblical people. It was the Greeks had their problems too. And I mention the Greeks because Ephesus is a Greek city where Paul is writing to. And so uh, in in Greek culture... uh, Demothesines, a Greek statesman, said this, said this about marriage. We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. 
Sounds like an interesting type of relationship. Xenophon, a Greek historian, said it was the husband's aim that a wife, quote, might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. Sounds like a really healthy relationship. Similarly, Socrates said, is there anyone to whom you can entrust more serious matters than your wife? Sounds good to this point. And is there anyone to whom you talk less? Doesn't sound so good. The marriage bond was virtually meaningless. It was somewhat better with the Jews, except for those who allowed for a man to divorce his wife for virtually anything, like putting too much salt on his food or becoming less attractive in his eyes. Why do I paint such a picture of marriage? In order to understand how we experience the shalom of marriage, we first have to be honest about marriage. We have to be honest that it's not some idealized and romanticized relationship. Yes, in the beginning it was very good, and we can experience that goodness. But to fully experience the intended shalom of marriage, we must be truthful about how we don't experience that intended shalom and what can be done. So let's read from Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, 21 through 22, and 25. Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins Ephesians 5 this way. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then a little further down in chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way your spirit inspired your apostles to write. And Lord, that we receive the benefit of that. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you'd help us to understand what you are expressing, what you are teaching us, Lord, that we might rightly live it for ourselves and for the shalom of our world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our fifth week in our new series, Shalom in the Home and Everywhere Else. And I re referenced this last week, but since we might have some new people uh, viewing online this morning or with us this morning for our first outdoor service, I wanted to give a definition again of shalom for those of you who might be new. Cornelius Plantiga gives us this definition, and it's a really good, helpful understanding. He says, it's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. It's what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness of delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitly employed. 
a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. And as we go through our series, we are going to unpack all the ways that things are not the way they're supposed to be and then try to then see what Scripture says about how we are to bring them back through the work of Jesus to the way they are supposed to be. Last week we were in Luke chapter 2, verses 42 through 52, and we saw that growing in shalom is what we see in the life of Jesus. The God-man, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, God the Son, grew in shalom. And it's just a glimpse that we see in this passage, but it helps us. It gives us a map, so to speak, in how to follow Jesus. And Jesus, we see, grew in shalom and shows us how to grow in shalom, both spiritually and socially. We saw that Jesus would listen, that he observed, that he asked questions, and then he was able to give answers that were carefully and faithfully sought from God's Word. And that is the pattern that we, as God's people, are supposed to follow. We are to listen, to observe, to ask questions, and then give answers that have been carefully and faithfully sought from God's Word. Today we begin our more themed exploration of shalom. We're going to work through different aspects of society and culture. And for the next few weeks, we begin by looking at family. Family is often described as one, if not the building block of society and culture. And so we start there. And this morning, we start with the foundation of the family, marriage. When we think of our own marriages or just marriage in general, we have to ask ourselves, does marriage reflect the mystery of Christ and the church? You see, Paul ends this section about husbands and wives in chapter 5 with a statement. This is a profound, this mystery is profound, the mystery of, of, of marriage that he's talking about. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. The understanding of marriage that we see in the New Testament harkens back to what we read from the Old Testament about God creating man and woman and bringing them together. And does marriage in general and our marriage, does it reflect the mystery of Christ and the church? Whether Christian or not, marriage was intended by God to reflect the mystery of Christ and the church. But going even further, do our marriages as Christians reflect this reality? To put it another way, as Paul begins chapter 5, are our marriages fragrant offerings and sacrifices to God? Are our marriages fragrant offerings and sacrifices to God? You see, Jesus gave himself up for us, Paul says. Therefore, be imitators of God's beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Gave himself up for each of us to be beloved child of God. 
to have a personal relationship with himself and the Father by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But he gave himself up not just for our relationship with the triune God, but he gave himself up with our relationship with all things, that all things would be made new and that we'd experience shalom in all things. In our relationship with God, yes, in our relationship with one another, a relationship with creation. He gave himself up for all things. He gave himself up for marriage, for our marriage. Because Jesus gave himself up for our shalom, we can give ourselves up for shalom. That's our main point this morning. Because Jesus gave himself up for, sh- for our shalom, we can give ourselves up for shalom. For shalom in marriage and for the shalom of marriage. Now you might be saying, wait, wait, what's shalom in marriage? Meaning our relationship as husbands, as wives, as spouses, but also the shalom of marriage. That our marriage is not just for ourselves. And so we'll look at both aspects of marriage this morning. Jesus giving himself up for our shalom is the why and how we can give ourselves up for shalom in every aspect and sphere of life. And today we begin with the foundation of family, marriage. So let's look at shalom in marriage. In verses 1 and 2, as I've already referenced, Paul writes, submit or in, in verse 21, sorry, we haven't referenced yet, but we'll go back to verse 1 and 2. In, ver, in chapter 5, verse 21, he says, submit. This is after he has given a, um, an explanation of how we are to walk in the light of the gospel, how we are to live, how are we to love one another, how are we to, how are we are to address one another, how we are to give thanks with one another, And he says, and he ends this section before he comes to the husbands and wives. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What Paul is saying here is that when we are full of the Holy Spirit, we all, husbands and wives, parents and children, and then going on slaves and masters, everyone, every aspect of life. He's giving us a household understanding, but every sphere of life, when we are full of the Spirit... We all will defer to and serve each other in the spirit of Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We see a a call to spirit-filled mutual submission in verse 21. Submit to one another. Now it's, you know, sometimes saying that, saying mutual submission, there might be people that get weirded out by that. But that is exactly what is what Paul is saying here. I'm not going out on a limb to say that what we see here is that Paul is describing what this mutual submission will look like. It is a mutual submission filled by the Holy Spirit. Submit to one another. And why we know it's a mutual submission is what's interesting is that in English... The verbs are supplied in the chap- in the verses about wives. They are taken, the verb is taken from the previous verse 21. 
So actually in the Greek, instead of saying wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, it just says wives also to your own husbands as to the Lord. But when it comes to husbands, the verb love is given in the Greek. And so there's this understanding that this is a mutual submission that is taking place here in the bond of marriage. It looks a little bit different, maybe, but it is a mutual submission to submit to one another. It's implied with the wife and it's explicit in the husband and how that's actually to be lived out. What we know from our reading in the Old Testament, what we see in Scripture throughout, is that both sexes are equal. Both bear the image of God and are equal in their standing and their spiritual gifts for service. And the New Testament supports this over and over again. In Galatians 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians presents men and women in an ordered equality in which there is no superiority or inferiority, simply differing roles. And we often get, get hung up on that aspect of, of roles. What's the husband's role and what's the wife's role? What does it mean for the wife's role to be in submission to her husband? What is the husband's role in being loving his wife as Christ loved the church? We're missing the point when we try to get down and understand, try to figure out what is the role? How, how does this actually work out in each individual marriage? It looks different in different marriages, but what Paul calls us to is the same. I'm going to use this example from yesterday. We, my wife, Megan, and I were organizing the garage, and she goes, is this going to turn into an illustration for tomorrow's sermon? I hadn't planned for it to be, but it worked out really well. And since she kind of gave me permission, <laughs> I'm going to use it. We're organizing the garage. We're installing a new organizational rack that hangs from the ceiling so we can put all kinds of stuff up there and make some more room on the garage floor and move our shelves. And for me, I'm very much... I want to get the shelf up. I want to put all the stuff that I can get up there, up there, and be done with it. But Megan sees a, a bigger picture, a bigger, she's like, wait, we can actually get more organized. We can take the time to actually get rid of things that we don't need. We can take the time to consolidate things and put them in different bins. She is the organizational mind. She's the one who wants to get things into place. I was the one, I was the muscle. I'm putting the, 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 the or the tech, the, the tech, uh, having the uh, understanding of how to install the, the rack. But that could be different in other marriages. I know many wives who are the ones who do the, who build things and create things. And it's the husband who's the organizational one, wants things done this way and that way. The roles can be different and varied, and the gifts that different people bring into the marriage, the husband and the wife. There's not these tasks are for men, and these tasks are for women, and these roles are for men, and these roles are for women. That's not what Scripture shows us. Scripture shows us that we are 
gifted with different abilities and understandings. And when two people bring that into a marriage, they complement one another. They help one another. They serve one another. And in that, they submit to one another. And so we live out our roles in marriage. God has given instructions to wives and husbands about how to live in order to bring shalom. Submission in this situation does not mean a slavish obedience, and sometimes it's taken that way. Sometimes we've taken in everything and uncritically uh, absolutized it to say in everything, not taking into account the fact that the example of Christ flavors in everything. So what it means in everything is consistent with the character of Christ. So a wife submits to everything as the husband displays the character of Christ. She submits to everything in her own understanding of the character of Christ. A wife's submission should be informed by and in accord with the call of Christ. She is to submit to her own husband. Notice it's not to every man or any man. It is just to one particular man in her life. Now, unfortunately, the church has abused this. (laughs) Men have abused this. Women have abused this, <laughs> this understanding. And so we have to say that it is awful when it has been abused. But we also must say that this, just because it has been abused, doesn't mean that it is not truth that God has given us. And so as wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, the the reference point for both the wife and the husband is verse 21 and verses 1 and 2 of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, when you take it out of context, it becomes what we noticed before, that's not a slavish submission. It's not a understanding of this submitting to one another in ways that are unhealthy, in ways that do not bring shalom. But it's out of reverence for Christ, out of our love for Christ. It's out of our love for God. It's out of our love for Christ who gave himself up for us. And husbands, that is how we are called to submit to our wives, to love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just as our wives are to submit themselves 
as Christ gave himself up, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Agape love. The sacrificial love of Christ. The word that had to be made up when Christians came on the scene because the Greek culture didn't have a word for the kind of love that Christians showed in relationship in the relationship to Christ and others. This is what we call servant leadership. The husband is to have the kind of love that is willing to die. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many, in Mark 10, 45. And again, in Luke twenty two twenty six, 26, said, let him who is the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as the servant. Christ loves his church and rejoices in its presence and meeting its needs. As husbands, we are to submit to our wives by serving them, loving them with a sacrificial love. As a husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, will be ever faithful to her. One thing that we as the church can count on is the fidelity of Jesus, the bridegroom. And together, as husbands and wives, we should be praying for one another's spiritual life, obligations and work, and other obligations, pressures, friendships, dreams, daily and passionately. For that's how Christ prays for us. Obviously, more, much more could be said. But at least this gives us a glimpse of what we are to see and understand in terms of the shalom that we are to experience in marriage. It is a sacrificial love for one another. It is a mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. Notice it's not a rever- a submitting to one another out of reverence for the other person. It's submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ, out of his great love for us, about what he has done, that he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And in response, we too are to give ourselves up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And that's how we experience shalom in marriage. But there's also the shalom of marriage. Shalom in marriage is designed to lead to the shalom of marriage. Paul begins verse chapter 5, therefore. Everything that comes before this, Paul is referring to, therefore. He is referring to the spiritual blessings in Christ that he talks about in Ephesians 1. He is referring to the grace that we have through faith in Ephesians 2. He is talking, he's referring to the being one in Christ in chapter 2. He is referring to the mysteries of the gospel revealed that all things are, are, are uh, come together in Christ. 
He is referring to the unity of the body of Christ that we have in Christ Jesus. Therefore, everything that Paul's reminded them of previously is what Paul is referring to. Because of all that is there, therefore, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Our marriages are to imitate God, to reflect our heavenly Father. Marriage isn't meant to be self-serving or even merely a private union that serves each other. Charlie Peacock, a songwriter in Nashville and a great, I think, great thinker, said, marriage is a strategic team assembled by God to reveal God's excellence. It is not meant to be a private union of two lovers who hide out from the world in their protective enclave. A good marriage should be the art of God in the world, pointing to his existence, care, and excellence. Marriage is storytelling and storied living. As we give ourselves to one another as fragrant offerings and sacrifice to God, our marriages then do the same in the world. Our marriages are to be fragrant offerings and sacrifices to God. They are to serve others. They are to welcome in those who are in need of a safe harbor, a safe place. They are to serve our neighbors in ways that bring them into the familial love of the community of God. They are to be life-giving. When we ex- and James K. Smith explains it this way. He says, when we expect marriages to be extensions of idealistic weddings, we're not only setting ourselves up to fail, we are abandoning the call to household, to curate open homes where others are welcome and from which we lean out to serve the good of our neighbors. Our marriages are to proclaim the good news of Jesus in word, in deed, in modeling. Mary Casson says marriage was created to tell the cosmic love story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And referring to Charlie Peacock again, a marriage should say to the world, look at God's brilliance. Look at how he tells beautiful stories through broken people. You see, ultimately that's what a marriage is. It's, a, it's telling the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of Christ and his church through broken people that are brought together as beloved children who walk in love as Christ loved the church, who understand the love of Christ, who gave himself up for us as fragrant offerings and sacrifices. And that in that, our marriages are to be for shalom. The shalom of marriage is not... We're not to just experience shalom in marriage, but our marriage is to be for shalom. 
You know, the reality is that only Jesus can bring shalom into our marriage. It's in Jesus that we experience shalom, and it's in Jesus that our marriage brings shalom. Because what's inevitable, what we confessed earlier today, is that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us, and we fail every single day, sometimes every minute, sometimes every hour. So we need Jesus. We need Jesus who brings shalom into our marriage and allows, us, allows our marriages to bring shalom with them. It's not about what we have done. It's about what Jesus has done. And if we begin there, it frees us. It frees us to live in shalom and to be shalom. Because Jesus gave himself up for our shalom, we can give ourselves up for shalom. Shalom in marriage and the shalom of marriage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for marriage, that you established it in your creation as very good. And Lord, we understand and realize that we don't always experience the very goodness of it. And yet, Lord, you have given us your son, Jesus. And in him, you remind us that our marriages, that we can have shalom in our marriage and our marriages can be for shalom. And Lord, we pray that you would help us Help each one of us. We pray for the marriages of this congregation. We pray for the marriages of all those that we love dearly. We pray that we would all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and his love for us and our love for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.